So, what we were talking about was, um, number one, women who oversell themselves at the beginning of the marriage. You make the man believe that you are going to give him the ultimate marriage, marriage experience. And in doing this, um, you are basically setting yourself up for failure because that means that you got to protect the image that you started off. You started off with from the beginning. You painted this picture that you were perfect. You painted this picture that you didn't make any mistakes. And so now you got to defend that. You have to defend that. So you leave no room for error. Understanding that we learn more from our mistakes than we do from our successes. But if you don't make any mistakes, you spend your entire time in the relationship painting the picture of yourself as if you're perfect. You don't make any mistakes. Then you are the one that lose. You lose. If you don't make any mistakes, then you're the, you're the biggest loser. Why? Because people learn from their mistakes. But if you're constantly painting a picture of yourself that you're perfect, you don't make any mistakes, and you got to defend that, that you got you got to defend that image as well, right? You got to defend that image. If you make if you paint yourself as perfect from the beginning, you have to defend that image. So every time your husband brings up something, you got to defend it. You got to deflect. You got to, you know, make it seem like it's not your fault because you came in from the beginning as perfect. You understand? And you have to defend that image that you created. So as a result of that, you know, years go by in your marriage and your relationship and you you never you never get any better. You never mature because you never make any mistakes. And you do that to your own detriment. You do that to your own detriment and the detriment of your relationship. And um, we talked about that, um, about how, you know, women, you know, do this in their marriages. You know, your, you know, your perfect image is to your own um, demise. And um, today, inshallah, Tida, we're going to talk about number two. All right. <clears throat> we also mentioned last week or two weeks ago uh, that when you sell yourself as the perfect wife, believing that this is what will make him happy, um, what will make him stay, what will make him not cheat on you, then he ends up doing those things anyway. He ends up cheating on you. Right. He ends up leaving you. He ends up, you know, he ends up doing all of the things that you feared that he wasn't going to do. And you changed everything about yourself. Right. You you changed everything about yourself to be perfect for him. And he still ended up doing the very thing that you were afraid of that he was going to do. You changed all of these things about yourself. You didn't even know who you were anymore. That's how much you've changed. You changed all of these things about yourself because you were in fear of losing him. You didn't want him to leave you. You figured if I did this, he's going to stay. If I did this, you know, he's not going to cheat. If I do this, he's not going to do that. And he ended up doing those things anyway. So you end up the biggest loser. Okay, so everyone understand that concept. So now we're going to move on to part two. And I hope you women are paying attention. I hope you guys are paying attention to this. Because there are a lot of women who do this number two right here. So the second thing that women do to destroy their marriages and their relationships is that you undersell yourself. So the first one was to oversell yourself as the perfect wife, right? You're going to you're going to give the man the perfect marital experience. 
Now we're talking about the total opposite of that, is that you undersell yourself, right? And what does that mean? So let me break this down for you. There was a study done that was titled Women's Bragging Rights, Overcoming Modesty Norms to Facilitate Women's Self-Promotion. In psychology, in psychology, it is well documented that women are less inclined to talk about their achievements than men are. Right? Women are less inclined to talk about their achievements, worldly achievements, than men are. Men are very flamboyant. Men are very boisterous. Men are very, you know, talkative about their accomplishments, their achievements in life. We do that. It's, that's a bragging right that we have. Women, on the other hand, in psychology, there was a study done that says that women are less likely to talk about their accomplishments. Because, largely due to a culture that mandates female modesty. We come from a society, just, you know, as Americans in our society, women are taught to be modest. Women are taught to be modest, sometimes to a fault. Sometimes to a fault. Women are taught um, in our society, and we are taught in our society that women shouldn't brag about, you know, their achievements. When a woman does that, right, especially an African-American woman, right, when she talks about her achievements, it comes off as boisterous. It comes off as, you know, just think of a gathering of women, right, and a woman talking about, you know, she did this. She has this degree from this place. She has this degree from that place, right? She accomplished this. She did that. Everybody's sitting back looking at, wow, she's really smelling herself, right? Wow, she's, you know, she's really, you know, self-absorbed, right? But when a man does it, you know, I graduated from this degree. I graduated from Harvard, from law, from this. I did, I did, went here. I went to China. I did this. I did that. And we're all cheering him on as, you know, we're, we're you know, he's massaging, you know, our ego with every accomplishment he mentions. And that's the double standard of the society that we live in. But that plays out in relationships as well. You guys follow me? That plays out in relationships as well. So... And so now let me get, draw a, a parallel line for you in the Islamic community. Since we're Muslim, I want to show you that we do the same thing even in our communities, in, in, the, in the Islamic culture, right? So in Islamic culture, women are taught that they are to be modest, right? And, and that is, modesty is a part of our religion, make no mistake about that, for men and women, for men and women, it's not just a, you know, a one-sided thing in Islam. Men and women are taught to be modest, are taught to be humble, right? And not to brag and boast about their accomplishments, their achievements, whether in dress, whether in, you know, uh, possessions, the things, material possessions, whatever. We're, we're taught to be modest in the way that we carry ourselves. However, there's an overemphasis, right, in the Islamic community for women to be you know, extremely modest. We're taught in Islam, uh, albeit, you know, falsely, right? We're taught in Islam that the woman's voice is her aura, right? That the woman can't even speak. You have in certain Islamic circles that women will not even be able to speak in certain circles. You understand? Last night, I don't know if you guys were paying attention, but when we did the Maradiyah show last night, we had Sister Nadira, Right, come up and, and speak. And she did something that was amazing. I don't know if you guys paid attention. What did she do? 
was anyone that's on now paying attention last night? What did she do? She did something amazing. And it wasn't pre-prepared or pre-planned. It just happened that way. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, facilitated that. What she did was, there was an entire panel discussion on the stage, all men, right? And then I gave her an opportunity to speak. I gave her the mic. And she sat at the edge of the stage in front of the men, in front of the entire crowd, which was something that was that is unheard of in any Islamic circle, especially where there's men and there's a mixed crowd. All right, this is something that, you know, the foreign community takes very serious. Even in the African American, predominantly African American Muslim community, the Sunni African American Muslim community, we take those things serious. Like, no woman just grabs a mic and gets up in front of a crowd and begins speaking. And, but it happened because we're taught in the Islamic tradition that the woman's voice is her aura. It's something that is sacred. It's something that should be, you know, covered, that a woman should not speak around men. This is what we're taught, right? Failing to realize that the Sahabi at I am drinking with my right hand. I am right handed. I am right-handed. The camera that is facing you guys makes it look like I am with... This is my left hand. This is my left hand. To you, it looks like my right hand. I am right-handed, period. So I am going to write with my right hand, and I drink with my right hand. I'm right-handed. So drinking and eating with my right hand comes natural for me. <laughs> it comes natural for me because I'm right-handed. I, I just, I don't understand. It, it Obviously, you're looking from a camera that is facing you. Obviously, it's going to look like my left hand. But the thing is, is that don't you think it would probably be better for you to send me a message on Facebook and say, you know, brother, I notice, you know, you, you're correcting me in front of everybody. Drink with your right hand, brother. No respect. No, you know, Salaam brother. You know, do you think it's okay if, you know, you did this? Like, come on. And then give me the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I forgot. <laughs> Is it possible that I could grab the drink with my left hand and forget? <laughs> like, come on. This is my right hand. I'm right-handed, so doing things with my right hand comes natural. It wasn't something that I had to be consciously aware of to do it. It's from the sunnah. All right. Um, so we're taught in the Islamic community that, uh, you know, woman's voice is her aura. We're also taught that, you know, the woman's leadership, that if a woman takes, you know, leadership over this or that, then it's going to be a failure, right? I, I, I work at an Islamic school where Islamic teacher before me were telling the girls in the school that they can't be leaders, Using the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, you know, in the wrong manner. So when we have like, you know, 
student body, you know, we have student body meetings. We, we're looking for, you know, someone to be representative of this grade and that grade. And you have women, young girls coming up to me saying, Brother Shadid, you know, the Islamic studies teacher said that, you know, women can't be leaders in any realm. And, and you know, if we're leaders over anything, we're going to be, it's going to be a failure. And I'm saying to myself, my goodness, this is what we're teaching our daughter. So what mentality are these young Muslim women going to grow up with? They're going to be inferior in every single circle they find themselves in. What are we teaching here? What are we teaching here? We're teaching our daughters that in any realm, in any capacity, there was no specification, there was no clarification of the Prophet's words. It's just... Oh, the prophet said that if you're a woman and you're a position of leadership, um, it's going to be a failure. Subhanallah, we just broad brush it like that. No detail, no explanation, no nothing in every single capacity. Subhanallah, this is what we're teaching our daughters. This is what we're teaching our Muslim daughters, that if a woman holds a position of authority over in any capacity, in any capacity, it's going to fail. So then what does that say? You understand? What, what does that, what message are we saying, sending to our daughters? That they're going to be inferior and that they should always take an inferior position no matter where they no matter where they go. I'm going to show you how this plays out in, them, in our marriages. So, this mentality, this mentality transcends the, the, the social fabric of our society and goes into, transcends the social fabric into relationships where women automatically assume an inferior position and you undersell yourself at the very beginning of your relationship. Let me show you how. And this is especially in the Muslim community where women who have standards, women who have standards, right, are oftentimes viewed by brothers as less desirable. Women who have standards are oftentimes viewed by brothers, by men, as less desirable and less likely to get married. Real talk. Facts. A woman comes and she has a sit-down with a brother, and, you know, she's laying down, you know, her standards. You know, I'm not going to accept this, I'm not going to accept that. And the brother's sitting there like, hmm... I don't think you're the one for me. Uh, let's, let's, you know, may Allah bless you with somebody else. And the, and the fact of the matter is that she might be the, she might have been the right one for you, brother. She might have been the right one for you. But because we are not used to seeing women reclaim, reclaim themselves. We're not used to seeing that. We're not used to seeing women reclaim themselves and stand up for themselves and set standards, set bars, as if these women grew up without fathers, as if every woman that we marry, every woman that we come in contact with grew up without a father. There was no bar in her life. There was no standard in her life. Have, I mean, like, come on. Yeah, real talk, man. The women who somehow have standards are viewed as less desirable and less likely to get married in the Islamic community. Alright? However, the woman who somehow undersells herself as needy, as desperate, a damsel in distress, 
She just wants to get married to complete half of her dean. She's seen as the most desirable of the women to marry. As long as she can undersell herself, right? She can undersell herself as a damsel in distress, someone who's desperately in need of marriage. She's the most desirable. But the woman who has standards, oh, she's less desirable and less likely to get married. So what do women do? Understanding this dynamic, you undersell yourself. Because you realize that if I stand on principle, if I stand on principle, there's a, a strong possibility that I'm going to end up single for the rest of my life. And you can't live with that. So you undersell yourself. You undersell yourself. And then as a result of that, you end up the one that is hurt. And I'm going to show you how. You undersell yourself, you end up broken, you end up broken, and after all, all is said and done, um, you realize that you should have stick to your principles from the beginning and just remain single. I mean, you got to ask yourself, would you rather be a person of standard, a person who sets standards in a relationship from the very beginning, and if no one can accept that, then you would much rather be single, then you compromise your standards, and you settle for less, you dumb yourself down just so you can be in a relationship. You have to ask yourself: You selling your soul? This is uh, this is an uh, um, this is another manifestation of a person selling their soul. So this oftentimes happens with you know the societal and communal norms that. You know, accepts the woman who is weak and desperate and rejects the woman who is strong and, you know, has a very strong personality and has standards. You know, this is the society that we live in. This is the society that we live in. And these things are superimposed on women. Sometimes we use the religion. In Islam, we use the religion to justify a woman underselling herself. When I say underselling yourself, I mean underselling your potential as a wife. You're underselling your potential as a wife. That's what I mean when I say underselling. You are underselling your potential as a wife within the institution of marriage to your own detriment. To your own detriment. And to be honest with you, it is, um, it is something that goes against our religion. To sell yourself short is something that goes against, my, goes against our religion. It's not that you have to be a boss. It's not that you have to be a boss. You don't have to come in because that can be a turnoff to some men. If a man is one of those alpha males, you know, that, that he's not going to, he's not, that's not going to sit right with him. You don't have to come in as a boss lady. You have some men that, you know, beta men that they're okay, they're okay with their women. And I don't, when I say beta males, I don't mean that these are weak, yellow back men. I mean men who are not necessarily assertive or aggressive on that level, all right? They're okay, they're comfortable with who they are, and they're comfortable with their women taking a more, you know, author authoritative approach. They don't have a problem with that. But for those alpha males, you have to be conscious of the fact that alpha males function a lot differently. And it's not that they're insecure. Alpha men are not insecure. They're not insecure. They just create space within their marriages, within their world, where they can dominate in that space. And as a woman understanding her husband, you have to be able to give him his space. 
And that doesn't mean he dominates everything, but he has his own space where he feels competent. He feels, you know, confident in that space. And you as a woman are confident enough to give him that. You understand? So it's not that you got to come in as a boss and you got, you know, you know, you don't have to do that, man. That's overcompensation. When you come in as I'm the boss and I'm the boss lady and, you know, my husband going to let me do it. Like, that's overcompensation. You don't have to do that because that's not normal with women. A woman who is classy, a woman that has, you know, carries herself with a certain type of demeanor. She doesn't come off like you don't have to make somebody feel that you are a boss. A woman can be a boss without making her husband feel that she's a boss. When you look at the story of Asiya and Fir'aun, right? When they found Musa, Asiya knew what Fir'aun was doing. She knew what her husband was doing. He was slaughtering all of the male children from Bani Israel. She knew that. But when she found this one little boy, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, intervened. Allah says in the Quran, and know that Allah comes in between a man and his heart. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can intervene in intimate matters of the heart. Allah intervenes in intimate matters of the heart. Right? So when Asiya saw this young boy, knowing that her husband was slaughtering all of the boys from Bani Israel, what did she do? What did she do? She used her womanly wit. She said to her husband, you, you, this, this child can be the pleasure of my eye and your eye. And Fir'aun, because of that, he let the child live. She didn't say, you know, I'm going I'm to exercise my executive decisions here. We're keeping this child. She didn't do that. Because when a woman has wit, when a woman has wisdom... You understand what I'm saying? When a woman has wisdom, she knows how to use her words. She knows how to articulate to her husband to get the things that she needs from him without making him feel the weight of her authority. And this is something that women who come off as I'm a boss and my husband know and give me my lane and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, come on, man. Nah, no man, no alpha male is going to respect that. Power with wisdom and respect. Absolutely. 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 When a woman is comfortable in her spot and she knows how to work her husband, she doesn't need to. to the thing is that women, women in marriages that know how to manage their marriages, um, they are the true. They are the real winners. They are the real MVP. And men, we know that. We know that. Real men in relationships that have been married for a substantial amount of time, we know who the real boss is. Women, sometimes you give the man the illusion that we are in control. But we know who's in control. Real men have been married for a substantial amount of time. We know that the women are in control. Sometimes you got to, you know, put on your executive hat and you got to make decisions. And we just, we step back and we let you do that. You understand? We, we know who, we know where the real power lies in. And women, you guys, when you're smart and you know how to carry yourselves, you give us the illusion that we are in control. But when a woman comes in with this boss lady mentality with your husband, what you're doing is you're effeminizing him. You're effeminizing him. That, don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. 
What I'm talking about is a woman who knows how to use her wit, knows how to use her wisdom, knows how to articulate herself in a way to get what she needs from her spouse. That's smart. Don't use broad top. Don't use broad brush statements like many men can't handle women in, you know, authority positions. No, men can handle that. It's just that when women get in those authority positions, you make the man feel the weight of your authority. You make, you make the man feel the weight of your authority, which is emasculation. No man wants to feel like the power has been taken away from him. And women in positions of authority, that's exactly what you do. You make the man feel that he has no say and all of his authority has been taken away from him. The real authority is not the loudest person in the room. The real boss is not the loudest person in the room. Understand that. When you walk into a room and you hear the loudest person, sometimes when you don't understand how power dynamics work, when you walk into a room and you hear the loudest person talking, you tend to think that that's the boss. When in fact, the boss is the one with the pen in his hand that cuts the checks, who doesn't really have to say anything. The boss doesn't have to say anything. But the loudest person in the room, we tend to think that that's the boss. And that's not the boss. You understand? So, um, when you think about going into a relationship with someone, what are you offering what are you offering in a relationship to someone? You're offering that person your soul. Your heart and your soul. Two things in our religion, in the Islamic tradition, that are priceless. You understand? When you go into a relationship with someone, you are offering that person things that are priceless. You're giving that person your time, time from your life, you're giving that person your heart, and you're giving that person your soul. You lay down with this person. You have intimate relations with this person. While we look at sex as a physical act, it is actually more spiritual than it is physical. You are offering this person your soul. And in Islam, we're taught that the soul is priceless. That's what we're taught in Islam. The Prophet ﷺ, he was talking to a slave, an ex-slave, his name was Zahir ibn Huram. Zahir ibn Huram, uh, who was a slave who was freed and, you know, he used to go into the marketplace and sell his goods. And the Prophet ﷺ was very fond of Zahir as he was with many of the, you know, the despised and, you know, you know the, the, the lowly, those who were considered lowly from Meccan society. And he, he had a soft side for them. So he used to say that Zahir is Badiatuna. Zahir is my desert man. When I go out to the desert, Zahir makes sure that I'm taken care of. And he said, well, not know um, that we are his city folk. That when he comes to the city, we take care of Zahir. Because he was a Bedouin, lived in the desert. So the Prophet said that Zahir Badiatuna. He is our desert man. When we go out to the desert, Zahir makes sure that we're taken care of. And when he comes to the city, we make sure that he's taken care of. So one day the Prophet ﷺ went to the marketplace and Zahir was there selling his merchandise. So the Prophet ﷺ walked up behind him and grabbed him from behind. Grabbed him like this. 
And so Zahir kept turning around trying to see who it was. And every time Zahir would turn, the Prophet would move so Zahir couldn't see who he was. And then when he realized that it was the Prophet Wasallam, he reclined his back on the chest of the Prophet Wasallam. And the Prophet said jokingly, Man yashtari hadha abd. Man yashtari hadha abd. Who will buy this servant? Who will buy this slave? Joking with him. Um, understanding that he was in the marketplace selling his goods. So he grabs Zahir and he said, Man yashtari hadha abd. Who will buy this slave? And Zahir said about himself, He said, Ya Rasulullah, La tajiduni kasidan. La yashtari ni ahad. He said, oh, Messenger of Allah, you will find me worthless goods. No one would buy me. You will find me worthless goods. And you understand that even in that society, even when companions like Bilal, companions like Zaid, companions like Zahir, companions like Mikdad ibn Aswad, all of whom were, you know, not Arabs. Many of them came from Abyssinia. They were Habashi. They were Ethiopians. You understand? They were, even though they had secured their freedom from the bondage of shirk, the bondage of idolatry, they were still in another, you know, they were still in another place of captivity, right? Which is, you know, marginalization, even in a society that is supposed to welcome you with open arms, right? Marginalization. And the Prophet ﷺ knew that. And this is why he catered to them. He championed the cause of the underdog, without a doubt. That's where real leaders get their valor from. Real leaders get their valor from championing the cause of the underdog, not the causes of the elite. You understand? This is why records or music that talks about selling drugs, sleeping with women, partying, strip club, making it rain, those type of records sell. But when there's what's called conscious rap, nobody's going to buy it. Because the talking about drugs and women and, you know, uh, making it rain in a strip club, talking about those things, it, it, it furthers the agenda of the elite. And so, therefore, it's going to sell. But when you're talking about conscious things, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, police brutality, white supremacy and New World Order, and you start talking about these things, it doesn't feed the agenda of the elite. So, therefore, no one is going to purchase it. And so a rapper or a musician going into that world eventually comes to a fork in the road where they have to make a choice. And this is where the whole selling your soul comes from, this whole idea of selling your soul. And so this is what, what I'm talking about with women in these type of situations. You come to a fork in the road. You have one failed marriage, another failed marriage, another failed relationship, and then you start to realize that, dang, man, all of the corny women got men. All of the women who sell themselves, sell themselves short. All of the women who have no standards. All of the women who will accept any type of man. They're in happy, seem like happy relationships. But me, I stand on principle. I stand on standards. And I'm not going to just accept anything. And I always find myself in a crash and burn relationship. Maybe there's something wrong with my standards. So what do you do? You come to a fork in the road where you got to make a choice. You can either say, you know what? To hell with relationships. I'm going to stand on principle here. Or I'm going to sell my principles just to be in a relationship no matter how dysfunctional it is. And some of you do that. 
Some of you right now are in a dysfunctional, unhappy, unfulfilling relationship simply because you sold your soul. And you are now reaping, you are now reaping the punishment of selling your soul, i.e., you know, sacrificing your principles for a false sense of happiness. You want a false sense of happiness. You want the luxury of saying, I'm married too, dangling a ring on your finger, but you go home to a man that does not fulfill your needs emotionally, sexually, spiritually, in any capacity. You did that to yourself. And you're sitting right here, right now, listening to me, trying to figure out how in the hell did I end up in this space? I'm telling you, that's how you end up in this. That's how you ended up in this space. So the Prophet Zahid, he said to the Prophet that you will find me, O Messenger of Allah, you will find me worthless. Worthless. This is how he saw himself. And the Prophet Sallallahu pay attention, because this is the way that, as a believer, this is the way that you should always view yourself. The Prophet Sallallahu said to Zahir, he said, La, bal anta indallahi ghalin. He said, no Zahir. He said, to Allah, you are priceless. You are priceless. There is no worth, there is no value that we can attach to your worth. You are priceless. Subhanallah. Powerful words, man. Zahid said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, nobody would buy me. You'll find me worthless goods. The Prophet said, No, Zahir. He said, No, Zahir. To Allah, you are priceless. You are priceless. Don't ever sell yourself short. Don't ever look at yourself as being worthless. You are priceless to God through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so as a result of that, as a believer, we should always see ourselves. So when you offer yourself in a relationship, understand what you are giving that person. You're giving that person your soul. You're giving that person a priceless soul. To God, your soul is priceless. The other person that you're with may not see your value, but God sees your value. And if you don't see your value, nobody else will see it. Facts. If you don't see your value, nobody else will see your value. So if you go into a relationship giving up your standards, giving up for a false sense of happiness, then guess what? You pay the ultimate price for that, and that is misery. That's misery. You earned it. The Prophet ﷺ said to Zahir, you are priceless. Now, let me show you how in the Muslim community, we steal this away. I mean, I don't even want to go into verses from the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhal ladhila amanu hala adullakum ala tijaratin tunjikum min adhabin alim tu'minuna billahi wa rasulihi wa tudahiduna fi sabirillah biamwadikum wa anfusikum darikum khayrun lakum in kuntum ta'lamun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this ayah, O you who believe, can I, can, I not, can I not direct you to a tijara, to a bargain that will save you from a painful punishment? That you believe in Allah and his messenger 
and that you struggle in the cause of Allah with your wealth and with yourself, this is better for you if you knew. You understand? Allah is giving you a bargain here. Can I not direct you to a trade, a bargain that will save you from a, from a painful punishment? What is up for grabs here? Your soul. If you give your soul up to God, God will make it happen for you. Understand? That is that is you know that is the you know the exchange here, and that is the exchange when you are going into a relationship with someone. That is the exchange. I'm giving you my soul. You got to work for this. My soul is not cheap. My soul doesn't come easily. I'm giving you my heart and my soul, two things that are in the hands of God, two things that I have already bargained with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for. You understand? You've already bargained these things with God. You've given your soul to God. You've given your heart to God. And then you turn around and you sell your heart and your soul to a man in a relationship for nothing, for free. You give it away for free. Some men don't even have to work for you. Some men, for some of you women, they don't even have to work for you. They can tell you whatever and you'll believe it. You don't, you don't make a man work for anything. You give him everything for free. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving you an offer, making you a bargain. You've already sold your soul to God. God has that already. So therefore, when you invite someone into your life, if you want to be a part of this soul, you got to be connected to God because I've already given it to him. You understand? God already has my soul. You want to be a part of my life? You need to be a part of God's life. You understand? It doesn't work like that. You don't get me for free. I don't, I don't come cheap. And if you sell yourself short, you sell yourself cheap, then you reap what you sow. Because that's the way you sold yourself. You sell something for cheap that is actually worth more than what it is, then you get whatever you collected for it. How do you make them work? You guys have to learn how to stand in your discomfort. I keep saying this over and over again. You guys got to learn how to stand in your discomfort. If a man is not willing to accept you because you have standards, then so be it. So be it. Go deeper in your relationship with God. Sacrifice. Stop, you know, stop making compromises for people that don't deserve you. Stop making compromises for men that don't deserve you. How are you going to sell your soul to God, give your heart to God, and then invite any type of man into your heart and into your soul? How? You're a walking contradiction. Alright, so in the Muslim community, this is what we do. Let me show you how this plays out in the Muslim community. Muslim women in the Muslim community are encouraged, unfortunately, by other Muslim women to ask for meager, less than meager dowries using the statement of the Prophet where the Prophet said that the woman who has the most barakah, the most blessing in her marriage, right, is the woman who has the easiest dowry. All right. So let me let me and and it's not it's your worth is not attached to your dowry. That's not what I'm saying. 
Your worth is not attached to your dowry. But I want to show you how this mentality causes women to lower their standards or to not have standards at all. Just so they can take some random dude coming in their lives and make their life worse than what it was before he came in. It'd be a difference if you you made some some minor you know compromises and the guy walked into your life and actually made your life more fulfilling. But you sacrifice your principles and standards for a dude that is less than and comes in and actually makes your life worse than what it was. That's to answer your question about, you know, what about, you know, making some minor compromises for a man that's worth it, for a situation that is worth it, for a man that's going to come in and make your life easier. You understand? For a man that's going to come into your life and bring fulfillment to your life. Not a man that you're going to make compromises and, you know, sacrifices for, and he comes in and he makes your life a living hell. How is that? How is that even logical? How is that even accepted to any lo any human logic? Nonetheless, the Prophet ﷺ, he did say that the woman that has the most barakah, the most blessing in her marriage, is the woman who has the easiest dowry. But Muslim women use this hadith to make women sell themselves short. However, let me explain the meaning of this hadith first, so that you guys can walk away. From this discussion on clarity, the next time a sister tries to use this hadith to make you sell yourself short, let me explain to you what this hadith means. Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah he said, إِذَا كَانَ الْمَهْرَ قَلِيلًا لَمْ يَسْتَسْعَبْ النِّكَاحِ مَنْ يُرِيدُهُ Imam al-Shawkani said that when the mahar, when the dowry of the woman is, is you know, meager, is not, you know, it's not taxing, it's not, you know, overwhelming or overbearing, then it makes it easier for people to get married, for those who desire marriage. He said, for nikah He said, so the marriages will become abundant, those marriages that people actually want to be in. And the poor and those who have less than now have an opportunity to get married. When you look at environments like Saudi Arabia where the dowries are so high, the dowries are so high, now you have a whole entire environment of young people that cannot get married because the dowry set so high, right? And then on top of all of that, the young people can't get married and then you have an all-males concert with, you know, with Nelly. I mean, like, I mean, you, I mean, what are you inviting into your environment? What type of box are you open? Pandora's box are you opening for your children? And this is the standard of Islam, mashallah, in our communities, mashallah. Islam is the standard. No Muslim country, no Muslim leader, nobody is the standard except the book of Allah and the son of the Prophet Sallallahu That is our standard. No, anybody, let anyone less than that is susceptible to any mistakes. So when you lower the dowry, when the dowries are, you know, uh, easier to pay, it makes it easy for people to get married. 
and marriages that people actually desire to be married, they will, you know, engage, and the poor people will actually have an opportunity to get married. Where you see the nasl, aladhi huwa ahamu matalib nikah, and children, right? Children will become, you know, abundant, right? Which is the most important aspect of marriage is having children, so that we populate the ummah, we create generations of worshippers of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. We're actually bringing people into the world that will now worship Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. This is one of the aham al matarib al nikah. These are from the most important, important necessities of marriage is to produce children. He said, "بخلاف ما إذا كان المهر كثيرا فإنه لا يتمكن منه إلا أرباب الأموال." He said, and this is the opposite. If the dowries are high and expensive, then the only people that can get married are the wealthy. So when the Prophet ﷺ said that the marriages that have the most barakah in them are the marriages that the dowries are, you know, are very, you know, very easy, not taxing, not overbearing. The Prophet ﷺ wasn't opening up a door for women to sell themselves short. That wasn't what. That's not what the hadith means. In addition to the fact that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala put no cap on the amount of money that a woman could ask for a dowry, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in the Quran, "وَإِنْ أَرَدْتُمْ وَإِنْ أَرَدْتُمْ إِسْتِبْدَالَ زَوْجٍ مَكَانَ زَوْجٍ وَأَتَيْتُمْ إِحْدَاهُنَّ كِنْتَارًا فَلَا تَأْخُذُ مِنْهُ شَيْئًا." Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said that if you want to replace one woman with the next, because that is exactly what. Uh, divorce is you just exchanging one woman for the next. That's what a, that's what divorce is. Istibdal is ojin, makan is ojin. You ain't replacing one woman with another one. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says that if you want to replace one woman with uh, another woman, and you've given the woman a mountain of gold as a dowry, do not take anything back from it. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala did not put a cap. On the amount of money that the woman could ask for a dowry, and the scholars they say, "هذه الآية دلالة على جواز إصداق بالمال الجزيل." That this ayat is proof that there is no cap on the dowry that a woman can ask for whatever she wanted to. Now, why is it that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is giving you as a woman the ability, the luxury to? For whatever you want it as a dowry, and then the Prophet ﷺ comes along and says, um, the women who have the most barakah in their marriages are the women whose dowries are, you know, the least that are they are least taxing or the least overwhelming or overbearing. The Prophet ﷺ wasn't requesting for the women to sell themselves short. In fact, he was trying to make it easy or create equal opportunities for marriage in his community, in his environment, where poor people were marginalized and couldn't get married. You understand? However, and there was a monopoly on marriage, just as there's a monopoly right now on marriage. You go into certain, you know, Muslim countries, you find the shabab, right? Young boys, you know, 21, 22, 23, they have no opportunity to get married. You have in some societies where families, they might marry with other families or whatever the case may be. But please, man. So... There was no monopoly on marriage by the wealthy and to increase the number of people in his community. While we ask sisters to undersell themselves, to lower their dowries for the complete opposite. 
When a woman, when a sister says, you know, you should make your dowry low, right? What is she saying? She's not asking you to make your dowry low for the same reason the Prophet ﷺ said that there will be much barakah in the marriages where the dowries are low. The woman, when she tells you, you should lower your dowry or you should just ask for Sahih al-Bukhari or you should just ask for an overgarment or you should just say you don't really need anything because you got everything. Here again, overselling yourself, right? I got everything. I don't need anything. Mashallah, that's not the point of the dowry. That is not the point of the dowry. The dowry does not mean, um, oh, I, I got everything. I don't need you to give me anything. That's not the point of the dowry. The dowry is a formality practice put in place by Islam. It's a formality. And that formality has wisdom behind it. It's, it's, it has wisdom behind it. We can't say, you know, you can't walk into an office. You could just walk into some place, right? And you could just, uh, for example, you go to a museum. And most museums, they don't charge you money. You walk in and they ask you for a donation. Now, if you value art, you value, you know, the, the artifacts that are in the museum. Your children like going to the museum. You understand what I'm saying? You're going to pay. You're going to follow the formality. You're going to pay it. Even though it's not something that, you know, is required of you. You understand? So a woman may have her own money. She might not need a man to give him anything. But the formality of it, if you value this woman, then you're going to pay the dowry. So you have women who say, well, I don't need anything. He, don't, he doesn't need to give me a dowry. You know, I have everything I need. Just give me Sahil Bukhari. Just give me a couple of books. He's supposed to buy you books anyway. That's your right over him to teach you and educate you to the religion. I'm not, ask, I'm not answering any questions about the dowry. I want you guys to understand the concept here. The concept here. Muslim women asking other women or telling, using this hadith to make other women lower their dowries. Basically saying, lower your standards. Just go ahead and marry the brother. He wants to marry you. You want to marry him. Just go ahead and marry him. It doesn't matter how much you have to sacrifice. Just marry him. All right? But they're asking you to do that because they're looking at you as someone who is desperate. So we're asking sisters to undersell themselves for the complete opposite reason so that they can be worthless and in turn taken advantage of simply because they don't appreciate, no one appreciates anything that's cheap. Do you appreciate anything that's cheap? When we advertise for a lecture and we say it's free, Nobody comes. But when we advertise for something and we say, oh, it costs this amount, people are going to get that money right and they're going to come. If I was selling a bag, right? I was selling a bag and I was selling it for $100. You would look at me, oh, that's $100. I'm, uh, it's, it's fake, right? And it might actually be real. I'm just selling it to you for $100. But if I say the bag is $1,000, in our minds, we automatically believe that it's authentic. You understand? We automatically believe that it's authentic because it has a high price tag to it. You, you, you guys understand what I'm saying? And uh, Richie Matthews, if you think that I'm full of BS, why are you on my page, dude? Why are you on my page? Obviously, you would say that I'm full of BS. <laughs> you would say that. As a man, you would say that. 
You know how silly you look right now saying that? <laughs> and after it's over, I'm going to block you. So enjoy. Nonetheless, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he uh, stood for the rights of women in his community. He said, Inni he said, Oh Allah, I will extract retribution on the two weak individuals in my community, anyone who takes advantage of them, and that is the women and the orphans in my community. He promised, he swore by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He swore by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he would seek retribution for anything or anyone who took advantage of the weak people in his community, which were women and orphans. So basically, our communal norm is for sisters to undersell themselves in order to get married most of the times to men who underqualify to have them. That's our norm. All right? That's our norm. Is that we basically want sisters to undersell themselves in order to get married most of the time to men that don't deserve them. Men that underqualify to have them. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that women are asked to undersell themselves because the men don't want to do any better. <laughs> they want to stay exactly where they are. So as a woman, if you're here, your standards, you know, your quality of life, everything is here. And the guy is here because as in our communities, as Muslims in our communities, we don't push our sons, we don't push our boys to do better, to excel, to, you know, be high achievers. We don't. We allow them to do them. We push women for excellence. Stay chast, maintain your virginity, right? Maintain your virginity, stay chast, fear a law, get your education. We push women to be high achievers. We don't push the boys to be high achievers in our communities. We don't. So therefore, the guy, the Muslim boy, he goes out, he loses his virginity, he smokes weed, he gets tattoos, about 16, 17 years old, he's no different. The only difference between him and an actual 16, 17-year-old non-Muslim boy is the fact that he was born and raised Muslim. But their, their lives are parallel. Parallel. And then when that same young boy, Muslim boy, decides, okay, I want to get my life together, now he goes back and chooses from the pool of Muslim women who are high achievers. You follow me? Pay attention to the blueprint. He goes to select a woman from the high achievers. This is where all of our marital problems come from. This is where all of our marital problems come from. The boys, they get a pass to kind of just do them. Do them. Because we can't really control them. Sometimes the father's not in the home. Sometimes the father's in the home, but he's emotionally unavailable. He's there physically, but emotionally he's somewhere else. His life is attached to his friends. His life is attached to, you know, some other wife that he has. Some wife, his life is attached to other things. He's there in the home physically, but emotionally he's somewhere else. He's not an active parent with his boys. So the boys kind of get a pass to do them. They lose their virginity. They smoke. They get high. They experiment with this. They experiment with that. And then when they decide, we put pressure on them. You need to get married. You need to get married, right? 
because we're tired of seeing them sin. So now marriage becomes, mashallah, tabarakallah, it becomes the cushion, right? To make us feel better as Muslim parents. To make us feel better as Muslim parents, we throw the pillow, the pillow right underneath them, the cushion. You need to get married. You need to get married. MashaAllah, he needs to get married, not simply because he's ready for marriage. We're just tired of seeing him sin. We're tired of seeing him with girlfriend after girlfriend. You understand? We're tired of seeing him do this, so we say, you need to get married. Okay, so where's this young boy who's tatted up, who's experimented with drugs, right? Who barely made it out of high school, right? Where, 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 where is he selecting from this pool of women? Where is he selecting from? He's selecting from the high achievers from amongst the women. You understand? He gets to choose from the high achievers from the women. So now we pair this brother, right, with this woman. Now, She's a high achiever, so her standards is here. She grew up with two parents in the home. MashaAllah, she graduated from college. She maintained her virginity. MashaAllah, Tavarakallah. Yes, she did everything right. She did everything right. So she's a high achiever. She's here. The guy is here. Always has been and always will be here. So now, in order for this woman to be with this man, what has to happen? Is he going to rise to the occasion? Or is she going to lower herself, you know, just to be in a marriage that, you know, you understand what I'm saying? This is where all of our marital problems come from. Wallahi, tallahi, billahi. Most of the, most of the marital counseling that I have done, right, has been because of this. I'm sitting there. I'm listening to the sister's complaint. I'm listening to the brother. And what I see is a man who is a low achiever, or not an achiever at all, and a woman who excels, right? She's the one with the job. She's the one with the degree. She's the one with all of these things while he barely making it. And that doesn't mean he might have a good job. It's not about the job. It's not about the money. It's about the experience, it's about the experience. He has very little life experiences. Very little. Because he stayed in his own little club, his own little, you know, his own little boys club. That's where he dwelled. Whereas she went off to college, she got a degree, she's experienced the world, she's worked, might be an entrepreneur. And so now, in order for her to be in a marriage, she has to lower herself in order to be with him. Because he's not going to rise to the occasion. And this is where all of our marital problems, most of our marital problems come from this right here. The boys have been given a pass to do them. The girls are high achievers. And now we're trying to pair them together. What do you think is going to happen in this situation? Because he's not going to change. He is who he is. Always has been, always will be. And she's willing to compromise, and that's the problem. She will lower herself for a person that doesn't even qualify for her. A man that doesn't even qualify to have her. And she'll sell her soul to have it. You see a sister, mashallah, master's degree, PhD, and she's with this guy, and you're saying to yourself, how, how, did, how did this happen? How did that happen? Now you know how it happens. So, this is what, you know, and 
So a sister who has a degree from any higher learning institution, university, college, is expected not to exercise her academic right to teach and educate or create agency for herself. Right? This is what we do in the African-American Muslim community. We're going to stifle you. Right? We're going to stifle you. She has a degree. But she's not allowed to exercise her academic prowess. She's not allowed to exercise her academic right to teach, educate, and create agency for herself and her family to assuage the consciousness or the ego of the husband who in most instances doesn't even deserve her and is only with her by default of a shallow pool of alternatives. Right. Right. There's a shallow pool of alternatives. So she settles. And the same thing applies to sisters who have knowledge of the religion. You have many sisters, mashallah, who have been students of the religion for many years. So these are these are the sisters who have degrees and the brother says, oh, it's haram for you to work. <laughs> mashallah. So she has a degree and it's haram for her to work. Mashallah. Okay. And the same applies to sisters who have knowledge of the religion. Years of studying Islam is to be completely dismissed under the jargon, obey your husband, sister. Right? Obey your husband, sister. Which is basically a tool that is used by insecure, over-controlling men, or boys, should I say, because men don't function like that, to keep the woman in an inferior place. It is really a tool that is used by insecure, over-controlling boys, right, to keep the woman in an inferior place. Obey your husband, sister. What does that even mean? So she's not allowed to even have an opinion? She can't say anything? She can't protest? <laughs> Why are we encouraging our women to learn Islam if they can't exercise that free thinking in the home and challenge you as the man when she believes that something is right? What is the sense in learning Islam? Why are we learning why are we teaching our women Islam if they can't exercise that academic, you know, that that uh, that academic prowess? Why? What is the purpose? If every time you get in your feelings, you're going to say, obey your husband, sister. And that's the end of the conversation. That's just a tool that is used by insecure, over-controlling men to keep you as a woman in an inferior place. Real talk. When you look at the situation between Zainab, Zainab and her husband, Abdullah bin Mas'ud. Abdullah bin Mas'ud was a scholar from amongst the Sahaba. And he was married to a woman named Zainab. Zainab asked Abdullah bin Mas'ud, go ask the Prophet wasallam that if I give my husband sadaqah, will I get a reward? This is what she asked. Go ask the Prophet. You have a good relationship with the Prophet wasallam. Go ask him, if I give my husband sadaqah, right, will I get a reward? Uh, Abdullah bin Mas'ud said, you go ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You go ask him. How would that make him look as a man that I'm going to ask another man, can my wife give me sadaqah? He said, you go ask him. So Zainab went to the house of the Prophet Number one, I'm showing you that the women had agency. They had money. The Sahabiyat were not broke. These were not women who stayed in the house, had baby after baby after baby. That's not the narrative of Islam. That's not the narrative of the early women of Islam. Where are we getting that from? 
I can give you narration after narration after narration of women who were rich, who were wealthy, starting with the Prophet Sallallahu wife Khadija. Wealthy. Wealthy. These women had agency. And any woman who has agency is not inferior. You understand? Any woman who has agency is not inferior. If a woman is a boss, she don't take orders like that. You understand? These women, that you can tell that in their environment, they weren't being treated as inferiors. Go obey your husband, sister. When did the Prophet ﷺ ever tell one of his wives, obey your husband? When did he ever use that, that, that jargon, that, that phrase? And we find many narrations where the wives of the Prophet ﷺ would challenge him. Would challenge him. Even sometimes when they were wrong, but there was an open door policy in the relationship, in the marriage with the Prophet ﷺ, where he would entertain, he would engage them. He would engage them. It was never, obey your husband, sister. So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, you go ask him. And Zainab went to the house of the Prophet ﷺ and she asked him. And the Prophet said, yes, if a woman gives her husband sadaqah, she has two rewards. Two rewards. One, for keeping her family ties strong. And two, for giving the sadaqah. Absolutely. You get two rewards. Because you as a woman don't have to spend your money on your husband. But if you do, it's a sadaqah. And you get a reward for that. And you get a reward for, you know, giving your husband money, which increases the love. Giving gifts between each other, as the Prophet ﷺ said. Give gifts and increase the love between you two. Give gifts. Because it helps to increase the love between people. So you have many women, you know, who spend years of their lives studying Islam and only to be told, obey your husband's sister. Obey your husband's sister. So I don't have an opinion. I don't I don't I can't say anything. I can't protest anything. I can't challenge anything. Like you're right all the time. And I'm supposed to just obey you, right, just to kind of smooth everything over to keep the marriage, keep the family together. Here again, selling yourself short. Selling yourself short. And the last thing I want to say is, women, this happens even in polygyny. And make no mistake about it, selling something for less than what it's worth is haram in Islam. And that includes your soul, that includes your heart, that includes your relationship. Selling something for less than what it's worth is haram in Islam. Let me give you the delil for that. The Prophet said, that no man should sell his merchandise over the merchandise of his brother. Meaning, you sell it for a lesser price, a cheaper price, so people can buy from you instead of it buying from the other person. It's haram. It's haram. So you're going to sell it for less than so people can buy it from you. So you're going to sell yourself for less than so the man can marry you instead of marrying another woman. These men exist everywhere. These men exist everywhere. There's no one community where these men exist and another community where they don't exist. It's upon you, sister, as a woman, God-fearing, God-conscious woman, someone who is aware of the priceless, the, 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 the value of your soul, not to put yourself in situations that you don't deserve to be in. 
Stop putting yourself in positions and situations that you don't deserve to be in. Value yourself and the people around you will value you. You understand? Value yourself. And the people around you will value you. This is one of the 48 laws of power. Act like a king and people will treat you like royalty. Act like a king and people will treat you like royalty. Act like a peasant and people will treat you accordingly. You understand? Act like a king and people will treat you like royalty. Act like a peasant and people will treat you accordingly. It's all up to you. It's all up to you. If you act like a sheep, you're going to attract wolves. Bottom line. So, this happens also in polygyny. This is where I'm going to ruffle a few feathers, but it's okay. Feathers should already be ruffled at this point. If your feathers are not ruffled, then that means I'm not either talking to you or you're not hearing me. <laughs> Either what I'm saying doesn't necessarily apply to you, or what I'm saying you don't really want to hear. Totally up to you. Sisters do this with polygyny. They become a second wife or third wife as an alternative to men who cannot manage their lives in monogamy. Let me tell you, there's a lot of men who go after second wives, third wives, not because they necessarily enjoy polygyny or want the polygynous experience. They go after second, third wives because they fail to manage their first wife. They can't manage the first marriage. The first marriage is on, you know, on the brinks, on the brinks of tipping over. You understand? The first marriage is out the door, out the window. The love is gone, emotionally unavailable, right? And he needs something more fulfilling. So he goes after a second wife. Not because he wants the polygynous experience. Any man who understands what polygyny requires does not want the polygynous experience. Trust me when I tell you. Financially, emotionally, religiously, physically, it's taxing. It's taxing. And if you're not about that life, don't put your feet in those shoes because they're not your size yet. You're like a man who wears a size 8 trying to wear a size 11. Those, those shoes are too big for you, man. Take them off. Take them off. And some people, these men are not about this life. I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you, they're not about this life. They go into polygyny because they need an alternative. They need an alternative, right? So what, what do you do as a woman? What do you do? You sell yourself short to go into a marriage with a man, right? As an alternative to him not being able to manage his current situation. So as a second wife or third wife, you are expected. What is expected of you? The expectation is that you are to accept a less than honorable status that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you in polygyny. Allah gave you in polygyny an honorable status, an honorable place. The Prophet Wasallam told Um Salama she came from the nobles of Meccan society. And he said, La hawan alik. 
لا أوانا عليك اليوم that you will not, there is no humiliation for you today. I'm marrying you, you are now one of my wives. I don't care what your tribe says, I don't care what your family says, I'm going to elevate you to a status that they cannot see. You don't marry a woman as a second wife, third wife, and make her status less than what she was. You elevate her status. That's what polygyny does. And if you are in polygyny and your status has not been elevated as of yet, then you need to put your husband on the path wherein you can be elevated to a level of excellence. The status that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you, don't accept anything less than that. And if he can't manage to give you that, then you need to keep it moving. I'm just telling you, real, real talk. If you are married in polygyny and you're being treated like a mistress, you've been given a, a, a subpar status to the first wife, you're not in polygyny. That's not polygyny. And we need to call it what it is. It's not polygyny. When a woman goes into polygyny, a man should feel comfortable coming out in front of the community, coming to his family and introducing her honorably as my wife. I don't care where she falls in in the hierarchy of the wives that I'm married to. She's my wife. You don't have to like it. You don't have to accept it. I do. I married her. She's mine. But to marry the woman and tuck her here, I can't take you to my family because my family doesn't accept polygyny. Then you shouldn't have married her. How are you going to say I can't take you to my family because my family don't accept polygyny? But you still married her. How? And how do you as a woman, how do you accept that? How do you accept that? And some women are comfortable in that inferior place. You're in a sunken place. Get out. <laughs> Get out, man. You're in a sunken place. And that's a, that's a discussion that needs to happen. Either you are going to give me the status that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave me. Or you going to let me go? Sorry. You don't get to keep me here in this sunken place. You don't get to keep me here. Sorry. You need to put your husband on a path. How do you do that? Then understanding the status that Allah gave you as a, as a wife in polygyny. And go for it. Force him. Put pressure on him to treat you as an equal to his first wife. What do you mean? How do you do that? You just sit there and let him navigate. Some of you, wallahi, wallahi, some of you women in polygyny, you are passengers in your own journey to self-discovery. You don't even know who you are, man. You don't even need to be in polygyny. You should have stayed your behind single or stayed in monogamy. This life ain't for you, man. You are passenger in your own journey, man. What do you mean, how do you get your husband to do this or to do that? You put pressure on him to give you what God gave you. If you can't give me what God obligated upon you to give me, then I'm out. Period. I'm not accepting anything less than that. Bad enough that I entered into a marriage as a second wife and I got to deal with the, you know, the social implications of that. <laughs> I got to deal with that. And to be inferior in my own marriage? You got to be kidding me, man. You gotta be kidding me, man. I'm gonna deal with the social uh, implications or the social, you know, 
connotation, the negative connotation of the social stigma that comes along with being a second wife. But then, in my marriage, I'm also going to accept an inferior place? You gotta be kidding me, man. If you're okay with that, then you deserve everything you get. I, I feel no way. I feel no way. You already in polygyny. You're already a second, third wife. You're already a social stigma has already been put a crown on your head. And then on top of all of that, you're going to accept an inferior position in your own marriage? you got to be kidding me, man. No. What do you mean, how do you make him, how do you put him on a path to give you that? Man, listen, understand, as a second wife, third wife, as any, whatever your position is in polygyny, the man has to abide by the laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set for polygyny. You don't get to run your polygynous relationship any way you see fit. Not with me in it, you gotta be kidding me. Not with my daughter, you gotta be kidding me. My daughter? No. You're going to give her everything that the law obligated you to give her. Or she's out. If I got to take her out physically. got to be killing me, man. You got to be kidding me. So you have some women who go into polygyny uh, to become second, third wives to, you know, as alternatives to men who can't manage or refuse to manage uh, their first marriage. So they expected, the expectation for the second wife is to accept a subpar status, accept the status that is less than the honorable status that Allah gave them in polygyny until the first wife can learn to accept the situation. So I'm going to go see you. I'm only going to come see you one day out of a month because my wife's still struggling with, man, then you shouldn't have went into it. What type of stuff is that? Oh, my wife is not comfortable with the situation yet. So I'm going to give you one day out of the week or one day every three weeks or when I can kind of slide away. And then when you slide away, it's only for sex. You're not coming by to see how she's doing. You're not coming by to spend time with her, to talk with her. How was your day? How's everything going? You sliding through to have sex, spend some time, and then leave. You understand? You a jump off. You a mistress. That's not polygyny. And then you're asked as a second, third wife to be patient because my first wife, we're trying to be patient with her. We're trying to do this. We're trying. Come on, man. Come on. And you accept that. And you accept that. Right? These women are expected to be patient for the sake of the family. What Flint? What family? She hasn't accepted me as a family. What do you mean be patient for the family? This is the jargon. This is the, the, the pimp, you know, the pimp slur that the man is running on you. The pimp game. Be patient for the sake of the family, inshallah. And you accept that. I'm just trying to be patient for the family. What family? The woman wants absolutely nothing to do with you. She don't want nothing to do with you, your children. She doesn't even want you in the marriage, period. And you're talking about being patient for the sake of the family. You're being pimped. You're being pimped. Not my daughter, man. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect our daughters from this nonsense, man. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to raise our daughters with standards that are higher than to ever accept something as lowly as this, man. You're being pimped. And you accept that. Right? So, she's expected to be patient 
for the sake of the family, when they have accepted a subpar status that indicates that they are not, nor will they ever be a part of the family. And when she tries to reclaim herself, navigate, you know, cutting out her little space within the polygynous relationship, she's accused of not being patient. She's accused of not being patient for asking for a divorce without a legitimate reason. She's being tortured, right? She's being shamed for stepping out of the marriage. We do what's called wife, second wife shaming, third wife shaming, right? Yes, and all of these men have daughters, and you have to understand, in the words of Dame Dash, your children are your karma. Your children are your karma. You do this to women, that joint will come back to you. Make no mistake about that. What you put out into the world comes back. What you put out into the world, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Hal jaza is not the reward of evil, anything but evil like what you put out. There's text from our religion about that. There is text from our religion about that. And the reward of evil is the evil like which you put out into the world. Right. So when a woman says, I want to khula, then we now we're going to shame you. Astaghfirullah, how are you going to ask for a khula? You're breaking up the family. Astaghfirullah, you, um, you know, you're not being patient. Right, And you walk away crying, racking your brain, trying to figure out how you can be more patient with this situation. Be patient with what? Give me something foundational to be patient with from the beginning. I mean, like, be patient with what? You haven't given me anything to be patient with. Be patient with what? What have you given me of a foundation to be patient with? Oh, you're breaking up the family. Oh, you're not being patient. Any woman who asks for a khulat without a legitimate reason, well, guess what? Guess what, brother? You not giving me the rights that Allah obligated you to give me is a legitimate reason. <laughs> it is a legitimate reason. I'm not saying that I want sisters to go back and get a divorce. I want sisters to fight for what is yours. Stop just sitting there accepting a subpar, less than human status in a relationship where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has elevated you. I'm not saying after this is over, go ask your husband for a divorce. Well, I mean, obviously, if, if, if it wasn't, if it's not meeting your values or, it's, you know, putting you in a position that's less than and the man is not willing to hear you or see you under those circumstances, then you got to do what you got to do. I didn't tell you to ask for a divorce. Don't say Shadid Muhammad said. Own it. Stand in your discomfort and own that. And when women sell themselves short, as I conclude, sisters, when you sell yourselves short in the world of relationships, whether boyfriend, girlfriend, whether it's a marriage, you sell yourself short. You will never win. You want to talk about winning? You will never win. You will never win in the world of relationships when you sell yourself short. You want to know why? You want to know why? Because men by nature are takers. We're takers. 
And so when you constantly keep selling yourself short, giving, giving, we're going to constantly keep taking. That's who we are. That's who we are. We're takers by nature. We are takers by nature. That is our nature as men. Not sitting around catering to a woman. Like you have some men that have learned how to mature with their emotions. and You know, they've had daughters and they've had some experiences that make them cherish the experience with the woman that is in their lives. They understand that. But for the most part, men are takers. And so if you're constantly selling yourself short, you will never win in the world of relationships because men by nature are takers. And we see a woman who sells themselves short as prey. Right? These are the women that are always there. A guy can go to jail for 10 years, come home, you're always going to be there. Because you're always going to accept a subpar status, always. And we know. We box you. We compartmentalize you. We put you here because we know at any point in our lives when we make a mistake or we fail somewhere, you're always going to be there to cushion us. We know that. You, we know you're always going to be the cushion. The one that everybody keeps walking over and you're always going to be that cushion. And we know that. So we'll, content, we'll continuously take advantage of you while you think you are doing an admirable thing by setting lower standards for yourself for the sake of your family. And we're going to continue to take advantage of you while you think you are doing a noble and admirable thing. You are setting yourself up for a life of pain and heartbreak. When you marry someone or go into a relationship with someone, you are giving them your soul. Your soul is priceless. And anyone who shares the same space with the soul that occupies your body has to understand the value of your soul. You understand? Any man that occupies the same space where your soul is in, they have to understand the value of their soul and the undervalue of your soul. You may not value your soul and that's up to you, but you damn sure need to understand the value of my soul. My soul is priceless to God. My soul, and I know that. And that awareness will cause me to set standards that if you cannot meet those standards, then there will be no relationship with us. I'm sorry. And I only pray that my daughter and the rest of our daughters understand that. That is a lesson that you need to teach the young girls, the women under your auspices, under your authority, whether you're a mother, a stepmother, it doesn't matter. Any woman that you have underneath you right now, they need to understand that, that your soul, your heart, your soul belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning it is priceless. Allah has already purchased that. So anyone who wants to be in the space with you and your soul needs to value your soul the same exact way. If my soul is priceless to God, you, in order to have my soul in your space, need to understand that. If you don't understand that, then I'm sorry. There's no room in my space for you. Period. So your soul is valuable beyond measure, priceless, and like anything of value, if you don't cherish it, no one else will. So while you sell yourself short to have a relationship, at what expense are you doing this? As Allah said to Bani Israel, Do you trade something that is less than for something that is greater than? Are you trading something that is 
is of value for something that is less than. And this is what we do to our souls every single time we go into a relationship with someone that we know doesn't deserve us. But some of us, we okay with that. So as long as we can say, I'm married, I have a boyfriend, I'm in a relationship, that's all you want. You don't care about anything else that is attached to that. And I feel sorry for you. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us all. And as I said before, if the shoe fits, then buy an outfit. If I'm not talking to you, then alhamdulillah, pass the message on to someone else. Pass the message on to your children. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all. I don't have time for questions and answers. I have a lecture to do in an hour, which is why I moved it up to 10 o'clock. So uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you. Uh, we can continue our discussion maybe sometime during the week. I know people have questions about this subject. Maybe sometime during the week, inshallah, I'll do a Periscope. I'll do a Facebook Live to kind of continue the discussion here. But as for the the topic, as for what we talked about, we're done for here for, for today, inshallah ta'ala. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you all for listening and chiming in on the discussion. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam wa taslimi kathira wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.